first thing I wanted to ask you guys individually is your background, family background, if it had an impact on what you do as a musician, led to you playing or anything like that. Like I know your father, Terry, was a bass player and, and whatnot. Did that have anything to do with your trajectory? Uh, no, yeah. My dad always played Django Reinhardt in West Montgomery and really always, every day, I heard guitar. So it, it's not exaggerated. I really didn't like it at all. When I thought, <laughs> <laughs> that's pff, terrible. So I did motocross and then. <laughs> <laughs> so totally, totally not into guitar playing. And then, yeah, then when punk rock started in Amsterdam, there was so, so many score places and you could, Anyone started the band run, so we said, oh, we do a band as well. What, what years was that? 78 or something, 79. And how long did that period go? No, I would say 10 years or so. Okay. And then, but then the drummer, he wanted to drum, and the, the singer wrote lyrics, so he became the singer. I really was the last one. <laughs> I didn't know, and then the guitar was left, so it really is, it uh, sounds ridiculous now, but... That's that's how it started. <laughs> okay, so it's guitar by default. <laughs> it sounds a bit exaggerated, but it's really true. And then I took two lessons, I think. So chords and, and but then I saw the King of Four, and then I thought, wow, this is great! It's so much energy in the back in the rhythm. Mm -hmm. So I, I took it from there, more or less. Okay, somehow you left Maybe. the lessons and just went <clears throat> on your own. Yeah, the lessons were kind of. Irrelevant, but it, mm -hmm. I mean, I quickly, because we quickly made everything together and mm -hmm. it didn't really matter also if you could not play or play. It was you more about the sound and, and, yeah, and stuff. Yeah. It was also the whole social context and the whole, mm -hmm. it starts really kind of naive. And Can you talk just a minute about the squat scene in Amsterdam? Because a lot of people, I don't think, know much about it here. And it was obviously quite significant for you and a lot of other people in terms of the social, the political, yeah. the creative aspects of what happened in Amsterdam. I mean, it was such a big thing that it's hard to imagine even for Dutch people now. Because there were like 10,000 Scots in Amsterdam and, and, and everyone started doing what he wanted to do. People started restaurants or... Well, why did the squats happen, I guess? Because they weren't even... Yeah, it didn't really... There was not really... Uh, people could buy houses and then just sell it again without having people living in it. Mm -hmm. It was just a kind of mistake in the whole regulation in Amsterdam. So there were... 10,000 of empty houses was kind of ridiculous. And then it all got squatted and everyone started doing what he wanted to do. Bicycle repair shops and crazy stuff. And, and many bands and many... I mean, we even had, had a gig on a festival before we even bought instruments. We, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It like a saxophone player. <laughs> ideal start. <laughs> no, totally crazy in a way. And what brought the demise of that? The, the loophole in the system, the bureaucracy changed, or now yeah, slowly they started controlling time. it, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it took a long time. And there was a lot of great stuff happening. I mean, amazing venues and, and many things, many bands. And, amazing. Mm -hmm. and for you, Andy, was there some kind of background that led to you being a musician, or was it? Um, my mom was an opera singer. Really? Yeah. Wow. And she she used to. <laughs> She used to play me uh, 
what is that, Madame Butterfly? You know, mm -hmm. this, she just used to play this bit, always called me in, in the bit when she kills herself. She goes, listen to this bit. <laughs> <laughs> like There's many, so many, much going on there. <laughs> <laughs> so many levels, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> really, many, many times she said, listen, listen to this bit. She was really like, you know, listen to this bit. This is really an amazing bit, the way she sings. Mm. And I was like seven or eight and just like, and it was incredible, but more to do with just the intensity of mm -hmm. the moment rather than... Mm -hmm. And then there was also a piano in the house, so I started sort of playing the piano just by <coughs> improvising. But I always kept my foot on the pedal that gives it yeah. reverb. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was all shouting, take your foot off the pedal! And, that really... <laughs> and then when I went to university, then I, it was a bit like what Terry said with Gang of Four. For me, it was a little bit later, because I'm younger. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw Big F this band from Manchester called Big Flame. Oh, yeah. And... Um, it was unbelievable. The, the guitar, it was like the Gang of Four, but like speeded up a bit. And the <laughs> songs were about one and a half minutes long. The guitar player couldn't tune yeah. his guitar, so, but he knocked it out of tune after every song. And the bass player would come up and tune up his guitar. <laughs> they didn't have like these fancy tuners then. And it was really like 15, 20 minute sets that they played. Like really incredible. For me, once when I saw that, then I thought, okay, that's, that's the kind of band that... Mm. So I was playing with uh, musicians in Edinburgh, Colin and Marion and Will, and I mean we didn't want to sound like Big Flame, but you know at that age you get really excited by something like that, and then. Mm. You and start when was this? Eighty-three, mm. eighty-four, mm. and that actually that's how I ended up meeting Terry because at a certain point we were I was, we were touring with one of the guys from Chumba One, and he said, "Have you ever seen Terry from the X Play?" Mm. And I I hadn't seen him play, but he said. It's like a kind of mirror, mm. left hand, right hand. So then we saw them playing Sheffield. Sorry, we saw them playing Sheffield, in a, and at the, in this gig Terry put his foot through the <laughs> through the stage <laughs> in a pub in Sheffield. And Colin, our bass player, went up to Terry after the gig and just went, "Fucking hell!" And Terry thought he hated it. <laughs> he was saying, "Wow, that's one of the best things I've ever seen." So that's how we got got to know them. so-called post-punk scene in, in England, UK. I mean, it seems to have had a pretty, like you talk about Gang of Four, you talk about uh, Big Flame and whatnot. I mean, yeah. it, it seems as an outsider, like the open-ended aesthetics at that time with these bands that came up after the, the, yeah. the punk scene, let's yeah. say, in, in England, London, whatnot, had a big impact on you guys. I mean, what was, 
Can you describe seeing that stuff in, in a broader sense or what parts of it were the things that attracted you or? For me, when, when like my sister, when, when <coughs> punk first came out, my sister was going out with a punk guy, the only punk guy in the school with green hair. And, and she said, you've got to hear this, this punk music. It's amazing. When I listened to it, I have to admit, I, it, I, I listened to the Pistols and the Clash and I thought, I mean, I thought it was, had energy, but for me, it didn't sound as weird as I was expecting it mm. from the way she described it. And then later these bands like The Fall and The Slits, this kind of next bit, mm -hmm. like The Next Generation, that stuff, for me that was really the stuff that uh, sort of got me excited. And what was it though? Was it like the, the sound or...? With The Fall it was because it sounded like they couldn't actually couldn't even play. I couldn't, <laughs> I, I couldn't believe that they made this record. I, the first one I heard was Total's Turn. Mm. And it's, I think it's a live record, and I, I was really shocked. It sounded scary to me because it just sounded like these guys couldn't play, but somehow the singer was pulling them along or something. Mm. And I just didn't know that you were allowed to put music like that on a, on a record. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, after that, uh, I heard this record of Ornette Coleman called um, Science Fiction, mm. and I had the same thing mm. with that. I just thought this is a complete mess. <laughs> like, I really didn't think, you know, I just thought there was a bass going brr, brr, and it was a kind of chaos. And now, when I hear it now, it sounds to me really like ordered, structured music. But at the time, I just thought, no. I, but I, did you like that? I loved it. But mm. it took me, that, that took me a bit longer and I lost mm. quite a few friends. Because <laughs> I, pl I played it to I played it to friends of mine that we that I've been mm. listening to Led Zeppelin before. Uh -huh. They said, "Listen to this," and they were really like Andy. Yeah, <laughs> they were really like, "You've really lost it. You've really lost it." It was really hard, but it was great. And what about you, Terry? No, yeah. When I saw Wire or the Fall, also I mean, they were, they were so kind of personal, stubborn, really doing what I what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. and that was, uh, that was also what we tried to do, and then you see all these kind of stubborn, weird English bands, and then, <laughs> like, you know, uh, yeah, Wire, for example, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they like Wire came to Paradiso, and then, fantastic gig, and they didn't want to play an encore, and we were all shouting, one, two, X, you, that was the famous mm -hmm. hit song, and they didn't want to do it, so we all got angry, I even pulled some monitors off the stage and let you think, oof, uh, it was actually <laughs> state of shock, state of shock. It was actually fantastic, they were so stubborn. That's amazing. <laughs> it was really like, it, for me it was really like bands that where you could really feel the character of the person and it was much more mm -hmm. to do with personality than to do with uh, right, vir right. virtuoso or great playing. Yeah. I, it did, that didn't really matter, they were making great songs and they were, they, they just had some kind of weird, slightly threatening also. Mm -hmm. Character also uh, the birthday party the first time I saw that. What really amigos? Yeah, <laughs> it was also serious. The three a good example of it. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Incredible. Mm -hmm. It's kind of had a, it was also threatening. It was a bit like wow. Well, in a way, you can really go up on stage and just do your thing with your own. And you have to. Have, it's more like to. And the first time I saw Terry play, I had the same thing in Sheffield, that he he did something where he was just tapping like really lightly tapping the guitar, but he did it. So convincingly, he was, he was totally committed to that mm. very, very simple act. And I really thought, oh, that's great. He's not playing like 27 notes and trying to impress. He's like just tapping the guitar because it worked in that song. And it was, mm. it was really uh, um, compelling to mm -hmm. watch that, just that you could play something so simple and, and that, it, that it works. And it's completely to do with what the music needs rather yeah, than yeah. this great kind of sort of fancy. Yeah, so a four gig in Rotterdam and then 
The drummer is not allowed uh, in, in, in because he lost his passport or something. <laughs> then they just found a conga, hippie conga player in the streets of Rotterdam and he was the drummer <laughs> of the folk. <laughs> Then Mark Smith, stop! And then, start again! <laughs> oh, wow, fantastic! Explain the creative longevity of the X. I mean, the core group has been working together for decades, and in my experience, no matter what kind of music you're talking about, for a group to be together that long and remain creatively like intense and not wanting to repeat itself or not coasting, what motivates you guys to keep searching after so many years? Yeah, but I don't. I think it works because we're not searching. Also, mm. we're just open, and then uh, you 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 listen to, yeah, or Gitachi Mukuria from Ethiopia, or Han Benning, mm -hmm. or many different things. You think, oh, wow, this has a connection. Like curiosity. Yeah, just and and then, and when we have the instinct that it has a connection, then it always works. Also, strangely mm -hmm. enough, mm -hmm. and I mean, that's yeah, it's hard to define also exactly how that works or why. Yeah, that's I guess what I'm curious about is that, I mean, certainly there are a lot of groups that have been together for a long time and they kind of hit, let's say, a creative wall and they continue. Yeah. But there doesn't seem to be this element of openness or change or whatever. Yeah. You don't really have a feeling about that? It I think it's also because we listen to, to, we're not like listening only to guitar music. Like our, the, the, the music that we listen to is quite wide between the four mm. of us. It, got, it, cross, it crosses like from jazz to African Ethiopian music, dubstep, you know, reggae, all every every kind, nearly every kind of music. Mm -hmm. So I think whenever we go in the rehearsal room to make new pieces, it's always like we always have a bit of a question mark. Like we don't go in thinking, oh, we're going to make this. Mm -hmm. So we go yeah. in like, oh, what are we going to do? It's, and all of us have that. It's not like yeah. any one per. And I think when you have that kind of openness where you walk in with a question mark over your head instead of walking in completely sure, what, I think that creates something that only the four of us can make together and nobody mm -hmm. else mm -hmm. can do. And yes. that's unique. And, and, and in a way, that it, when I think of all these bands that get together and they, they want to already sound like something or they want to be a hardcore band, or they, that's a bit of a shame because they kind of put their mm -hmm. limit themselves instead of just going in as, as personalities and bumping into each other and 
mm-hmm. finding in a way we've also it's clumsy and it takes time we we, we find our way like that and we don't really it's, know what yeah. it is it so many bands they, they, they only want to grow bigger and only take care about themselves and their own career and their status and their mm-hmm. we, we are not interested in all, at all in getting bigger or more famous and so that's that's even a bit irritating when that, that mm. whole chapter. Mm. We just play music and then you're open to many different things and that, that's mm. important and not, mm-hmm. not being well known or, or mm-hmm. really, that's mm-hmm. irritating. Mm-hmm. And sometimes also we make a song in the rehearsal space and actually it takes us about a year to learn how to play it properly <laughs> because we, we have an idea about how it should be but at first we don't necessarily know, know how and then we, when we start playing it live it's sort of very, very slowly, incrementally, the bits sort of join together, and then suddenly it works. But that you can't, you can't force that. You you have to, you have to spend that time, that six month, that three months in the rehearsal space, and six months playing it live, to mm-hmm. get to that stage. So we're willing to do that. That's the. Mm-hmm. I mean. No, yeah, and, and then when suddenly Gattaccio is involved or you yeah. are involved, then then it's a whole different uh, spectrum in a way. Mm-hmm. You, then you don't play. You hear different things and different connections. Yeah. And mm-hmm. So you play with that and and. I mean, especially Gitachu from a yeah. totally different background. <laughs> yeah, that was something I Just to hear, I mean, that, that's yeah, very, yeah. very special. I mean, maybe that, that was something I really wanted to talk about because for me, uh, knowing your music and seeing you guys for a while when the record came out with Gitachu Mercuria, who's an extraordinary uh, tenor saxophone player and clarinet player from Ethiopia, I mean, I really wondered what that would be because I hadn't yeah, seen any uh, other concerts and I just got this record. and. Yeah. To be honest, I was really, uh, what's the right word? I wouldn't say concerned, but I was wondering, like, Jesus, you know, like, how is this going <laughs> to... I mean, I'm serious, I was, so, I was like, wondering, like, wow, okay, the ex in Ethiopia. I mean, because I didn't know anything about the, the history leading up. It's a really good idea. But then it worked incredibly. I mean, it was really, yeah. like, I put it on, I was like, holy shit, this sounds like... You guys, it sounds like Gitachu. Yeah. It sounds like its own thing. I mean, that's one of the more extraordinary collaborations I can yeah, think yeah. of in terms of like cross-cultural an amalgamation that doesn't lose anything in the process. It doesn't. Yeah. It's not like world music no. in the worst sense. No. But I think what that word means. One of terms. the main things why it worked that it was also his idea. Right? We brought mm-hmm. him over to play with the ICD <coughs> and. Uh, mm-hmm. Then he saw the axe and he said, oh, I want to play with you. And, uh, mm-hmm. and really, uh, and then, yeah. but also not knowing what he was stepping into. Or <laughs> <laughs> so that was also brave. And, and, and I mean, yeah. And how long did, like, when you talk about working as the X, the, the group now, the quartet, and developing a tune, and it takes a year to learn it and whatever. If you're working with someone like Gitachu and in the initial stage, you know, you had these pieces that were, let's say, classic Ethiopian tunes, adapting them and working with them. I mean, obviously, you're working under time constraints. So you did play for years and whatever, but you had to have results to do the tour. So how did you do that? We rehearsed, we we prepared without Gitachu. Okay. I mean, I don't know whether he chose the first songs. He chose the songs, and then we we went in together, me, Kat, Colin, Mm -hmm. did played bass, and... um, and we kind of just found our way. But basically, we didn't try to change our sound. None of us tried to try and pick up an Ethiopian instrument and play, like, authentic. We used, yeah. we just used, and that's important, that we kept, our, we kept our identity, we kept our sound. And we played it also the way, we, the way we can play it. So I think once we had it kind of 
into a sort of rough shape. Then we invited Gitachi over. Mm -hmm. And what was and his he, response initially? Did he like it? Or? Uh, he's very, very strong. Right? He, he, can, uh, yes. he can also say, this is crap. Or yeah, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> there were some yeah, things yeah. he just thought we got it completely wrong. And it's a whole adventure. So that, that, and also because there was no language, uh, mm -hmm. we couldn't really speak so easily. So there was a lot of like, you solo, me solo. So like this really yeah. like, yeah. but slowly we But he loved it also. Yeah, yeah. I think oh. slowly, mm. I think it was, he was also amazed that, that some weird band in Holland would be doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. for him it was also, it, for me it's like a celebration of, of his music, playing mm. that. <coughs> it's, we're not trying to I interpret it or uh, mm -hmm. sort of take it to a, some other stage. We're, I think we're, we're celebrating it. It's like he, play, he has these great songs that he's been playing for 50 years already. And he plays them, every time he plays them, it's like he's playing them quite fresh. It's like mm -hmm. he's been playing the same songs over and over again. So for us, it was like a, we, had, we also celebrated that. It was a sort of... Yeah, it across. It, but yeah. it's also fantastic to get to know him. And then his background, that his father was a honey merchant <coughs> on the countryside. And then when he, he was 13, he'd never been to school. Never, he couldn't even write or read or anything. He heard a, a saxophone on the radio when he was 13 and he said, this is what I'm going to do. And that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he goes to Addis and buy a get into this municipality. Bent when he was 15 and gets a saxophone and, and that's really his. Yeah. Kind of, that's totally hard to describe but, hard, but it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. But also when like touching a saxophone, that, that's kind of his, he would hit you right away. <laughs> also, when we came to America, we really had to prepare. Yeah, the customs. Yeah. Yeah. customs. Don't hit his custom guy. Ron. When he touches, he's so furious. The guy was really yeah. trying to pull down. He, he, he was so ready to whack him. couple questions one connected to improvised music and how you guys started to intersect more and more it seems with not just the Dutch scene in Amsterdam but also outside like people like John Butchery you've worked with and Xavier yeah. Charles and whatnot I mean um, when you talk about curiosity and and I have to as an anecdote this this was like a very important show for me and I in my memory both things took place in Malouz, but I think 
the the ex orchestra played in Malou's the same year you played duo with Han. Does yeah. that make sense? And the ex orchestra was how many people was in that band? Twenty. Twenty. Yeah, it had with four drummers. Three drummers, three, three drummers. bass players. Yeah, it was it was a big group. <laughs> Very good idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a mess in the low end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was quite extraordinary. And and in the best compliment, I mean it is the best compliment. It was like seeing Carl Stallings music from Warner Brothers live. It was so over the top yeah. in the best way, and I just would laugh the whole way through the performance. And I can remember Michael Moore playing clarinet, completely inaudible. In the middle of all this, just playing clarinet away, like someone would hear it. It was so great, and that was really exhilarating. And then afterward, uh, uh, maybe it was a different night. It was a festival in France. Um, Terry played duo with Han Benick, and Han Benick is a real hero uh, uh, for me. I mean, he's an extraordinary musician and improviser. And I was really curious about like how that would work. I'd never seen Terry improvise before. I'd only heard him in the context of the music uh, of the X, where there is improvisation, but you know what I'm trying to say. And it was completely baffling, this duo. <laughs> I mean, I, it was one of those things where you're watching it and it's just making you more pissed off. Because it was inscrutable. I couldn't figure out anything that was going on. It really felt like, why is Terry doing this? Because Han's doing this and this is making sense. Like I could read Han his music but Terry like I was completely confused by it and there was a moment where Han was playing on the snare and there was a coffee cup on the stage it was a pretty broad stage and he kicked it in the middle of doing something and Terry was like well, on the other side and the cup went like right in his head in the middle of this all this stuff and Terry's like doing something he caught the cup threw it on the ground and kicked it right back at and I thought, holy shit, these guys are so hooked up. <laughs> I mean, there's no, it was, it was, you we could. We the rest of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you make some money. <laughs> no, I mean, it was, that kind, that was like the most visual, I mean, for someone uh, unable to hear what they were doing clearly, that visual reference made it clear how, how close they were communicating. And I just really, like, I can catch that in my mind, like, like it happened just yesterday. And after that set, there was a set by a trio of, like, world-class, very famous improvising musicians. And it was so boring after, <laughs> after hearing Terry and, and Hans set. And it was a, a changing point for me, because what it showed was that the thing that I really love about improvised music and the history of jazz is that it could be anything. It could be, and it's about surprise and risk. And even great mainstream players like Johnny Griffin, when you'd see them play, it was exhilarating because you were, they were just taking chances and risking and pushing. And when I saw this trio set, it was very well played and professional. And I realized this is now it's free improvised music is a set of languages too. And free improvised music has a school. And free improvised music can be really boring. And all the things that I like most about improvised music happened in the set with Han and Terry, even though I didn't even understand it. I could recognize that what they were doing was taking chances and kind of working with a language that hadn't been predefined and set up where all the signposts were evident. And it really was a turning point for me.
as as a listener and, and really as a player because later you know we started working together but that was a super significant show um, for me personally but when when did you guys start working more and more with with the players from that scene and what motivated you to do, I know you're curious as you yeah. say but there's a difference between listening to music and yeah. interfacing yeah, with yeah. it and what what motivated you but it started happening in in the early 80s we recorded in this kind of kind of hippie guy he had a Scott studio and but he also one time we came in and there was a Iraqi Kurdish band uh, recording mm. and then we thought wow that's fantastic music wow and then okay we do a split single and then uh, the violin player plays violin on our track and I do a guitar solo on their track there was a Stupid idea, of course. <laughs> so the, the violin is great on our track, and, and they hear <laughs> but then you hear, hear uh, that track, and then after um, three choruses or so, you hear suddenly me. And that's it, huh? <laughs> I heard it back the other day. But I mean, that's that's also improvising. You don't know anything, and, and then the same year, also a jazz guy played, and he played on our uh, single box. That, that, which came out in 82 and then we had the blueprints. We did a lot of improvising in the way from the beginning and yeah. mm -hmm. next to the kind of punky gig, so. And then slowly, I mean, when you have this connection with Han or mm -hmm. different jazz guys and then. I mean, also go, starting to go to the BIM house, that was the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that was the, a place to go and see. In, in Amsterdam, there's a really great place called the BIM house. And that was the first place I, I was, Terry, when I yeah. moved to Holland, Terry took me once to see, to see Han actually. And it was really, yeah, no, I, I had a bit yeah. the same. It was quite mind mind boggling. I hadn't really seen music like that before. And um, then also there was a point where we decided, okay, we let's try and do it like what we did tonight. Let's go and like do a few gigs duo and not plan anything because we were used to being on stage where we always had the songs. And so we just had, we made a kind of we made a set list actually, <laughs> <laughs> with just like very simple <laughs> ideas. But it lasted about 10 minutes, the whole thing. There's about 20 <laughs> songs on there, but the whole thing lasted about 10 minutes. And I remember once we played with uh, Michael Thatcher, this drummer, and we gave him the set list. I said, okay, this is the set list. So the first one's a bit quiet, and then it's, this one's a bit scratchy. And so we, we played, and we were finished, and he was only on the second song. <laughs> and then we also realized it's really different from the way like our tempo and our idea of what 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 this is and what he's doing and he's a, he was a very respected and he's a great drummer it's not like it, it, but he, he was in a very different uh, sort of sort of but it was great it was really uh, I, I, that was quite a and from that we just got so to, it's kind of an organic process yeah we slowly vision. and then we did it with Volta also we, we we sometimes we would invite a third and our bars also mm -hmm. And you also you always felt like you were playing with these great players who like technically could play like in a way much better than us. But the way the way they listen and the way they worked with us was it, for me it really felt like we were working together, trying to make good music together. And I I felt really happy that there were musicians like that who were so good that also played jazz and stuff mm. that were really willing. To play in, in this way with uh, with completely different uh, style of musicians, and we could really make music together. Like, yeah, and it doesn't sound out of place like in Joggers and Smoggers, which is yeah, the yeah, first yeah. one I got by you guys. With uh, yeah. I think on that and Walter, it, yeah. it doesn't sound like okay. There's a jazz song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's exactly. like totally. But, no. but you also music. realize that it's very very personal, who you like or who you don't like, which is yeah. sometimes very confusing for me. Mm -hmm. 
Sometimes I see a drummer and he's a fantastic drummer and I hate it gewoon, weet je. But why exactly? That's it's just a mm-hmm. very subtle kind of timing or <laughs> it's bizarre how that goes. Yeah, yeah. But we're lucky these these guys want to play with us. And then you get some kind of connection and but there are tons of people who, who we never play with or uh, yeah. we don't think it's interesting and they don't think it's interesting also at all. Yeah. And they, and they also they also organized their own gigs. For me, they were like in, they were, you know, we had this idea about all these bands, the punk bands, are all booking their own gigs and doing all that stuff. These guys were doing that as well. Mm-hmm. In this other scene, they were doing exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were organizing their own stuff, putting out their own records on their own labels. Mm-hmm. It was really yeah, the whole ICP. Yeah, it's very yeah. sort of. into the United States and I think a lot of people don't really know very much about this so I would just like it if you could give a bit of a rundown <laughs> on the bureaucracy okay. and costs okay. for this band to come to the US today well the way it used to happen when we came to the States is we would, <coughs> we would come with our guitars um, and we would just when we arrived at the border we would be a little bit nervous and they would say, you know, what are you doing here with a guitar? And we usually said we're going to record either at Steve Albini's or something. And somehow, most of the time, in fact, all of the time, except once when we got sent away, we we um, we got in. But the last three times we've had to to apply for a working visa, and that's partly because of the internet. Now they can check our names and the band name quite fast. So and once you're in the system. You can't really come as a tourist anymore when you have this. But the, that whole process in the space of 10 years from the first time we did, had work permits, or eight years, till now in itself has also become much, much more complicated and expensive. And now it, I think it costs, it costs us about 4,000 euros in the end for the four of us to pay. We have to, you have to pay for... Um, we have to pay a, an organization who has to f- help us with it because we can never do it ourselves. Because if you make one mistake and you don't get in, then, you, then you're also banned for 10 years from getting in. So, so we have to do it through <laughs> another uh, a sort of representative who knows how to do it. So we have to pay them. We have to pay the American Embassy, which we have to go and have an interview with the consulate. Um, all four of us have to go there, make an appointment. Each one of us has to pay 180 euros for that meeting. And the, the, the interview was basically, the guy said, uh, what instrument do you play? 
and what's the name of your band? And then gave us a stamp. <laughs> so that that was it for for the interview. <laughs> totally mad. And in the end, I I um, gave, I gave my passport, and so I couldn't. I wanted to go to Italy, and I couldn't. I couldn't leave the country. So I, we, it, it became it became like a really unpleasant stress or something, and it was just for us wanting to. And what about the tax? Sir? Yeah, and the other thing is, in the last five or six years, um, all the all the sort of medium-sized clubs now have. A, when if you play there, you pay a thirty percent tax. I don't know if you've experienced, if any musicians have experienced, whether it applies to American musicians oh, no. as well. We're here. <laughs> so you, you you get a offered a guarantee of say you get offered a guarantee of a thousand dollars, you will only get seven hundred. They take off automatically three hundred for tax. Unless you get a tax waiver, and to get a tax waiver, you have to phone up this guy called Frank Page <laughs> in Florida, and he 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 he's like an accountant, and he organizes a tax and you pay him fifteen hundred dollars. Totally bad. So to, but it, but basically, it's not that we would have to pay that tax because we would get it back, but we'd get it back. We'd have to get it back a year and a half later. And we'd have to we have to start doing tax returns. And right. tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, we have to go now to an office and get social security <laughs> numbers. So it's just become like a. I mean, a part of me thought, oh, we're probably not going to come back again after this because it was too. Which would be a shame if it get maybe. I mean, it just feels like it's such a a cost and a stress that it, it's like, it, and it seems to be getting you know the pressure of it seems to get. And there's so many, it's very psychological uh, intimidation as well. The whole way that you fill in this form also where they ask you all these questions about uh, terrorism, prostitution, drugs running, everything. It's like the whole thing keeps you off, off balance the whole time. You always feel like you're doing something wrong until you finally get in the country, which, I mean, the, the easiest bit was arriving at the customs guy, but even there... I panicked a bit because he asked me for a form that I thought I didn't have, and I was like, "Oh no!" Like, it's it's constant all the way up to the last uh, stage. Yeah, so I basically, know. I mean, not to talk specific numbers, but on the tour, w which they've invited me on, I mean, the fees are are let's say decent. Yeah. The costs right. of this part and the travel and. Accommodations, because in the U.S., uh, unlike in Europe, the presenters almost never pres uh, provide accommodations, which is a huge expense. Um, basically, after all the expenses, I think the total would have been a hundred dollars, <laughs> and that's not an exaggeration. And the only reason there's any money is that they were lucky enough to get a subsidy from the Dutch government to help bring them here. And that's the situation in the U.S. And the, the X are a well-respected band that has a history that's come to the States many times without, as far as I know, prostitution. Or <laughs> You're in my house, so keep it on the down okay? <laughs> the situation is quite absurd, and I just wanted to bring that up because I think people should know about this, that, that the United States is really closing its borders in many, 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 many insidious ways. And it used to be open to people, and it used to be open to artists. And the 20th century was transformed by us being open. And this is the 21st century, and things are really changing, not for the better. So I, I think it's important for people to be aware of this stuff and not just assume, oh, the ex gets into the country and gets yeah, to play yeah. some shows. 
There's a lot yeah. of demeaning factors involved for them wanting to come here, and, and other bands too, and other artists yeah. too. And uh, I think people should be aware of that. That the thing that I said about us writing out the, we that was that was 15 years ago when we first started because we were kind of a little bit nervous and we were used to writing set lists. We'd been doing it for years with the X, so we thought, okay, we'd write a set list. We didn't necessarily always follow it, also, um, but tonight we were just uh, playing together yeah, I, and I listening. Didn't even plan ahead of time but I wouldn't also if we listen back to it. I wouldn't be able to, to define any any um, like I wouldn't. We don't have any kind of set set things that we um, agree on it, with it with 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 when we improvise of course in the X it's very it's structured and there's form so or did I misunderstand well I don't, I don't mean did you before playing that right then think about what you're gonna do I'm saying like do you have like oh yeah we're doing that I don't want to make up an example because it'll sound stupid but you know do you have like the whatever you said the scratchy part that was the example. oh I see 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 I see what you mean. no not really I don't think so really, we don't really no. discuss it we, after the gig, we go, oh, that was good, or, oh, that was all right. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, it, we don't go More too... like that. Yeah. <laughs> we don't go, With we don't that go voice. <laughs> we don't go too deep into it. <laughs> like, no, we don't... Also, the, playing with Lean Left, with, with Ken and Paul, we don't have any um, arrangements before. And usually we afterwards, we look at it, you know, you just look to see whether, whether how people thought the gig was. And it's really, you know, you... It's not like 
Yeah, and you feel yourself also that some parts don't work, of course, or this, my leg hurt, or can't see, you feel in the tone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, many things go wrong, <laughs> but that's also part of the game, that's, that's good. Yeah. I just want to ask about uh, the playing techniques and discovery of different ways of approaching your instruments, and you, you've been doing this for a, a long time, obviously, by now, but like, Tonight, when you were playing, did you come across something totally new, or do you discover these techniques through practice and investigation, or how, you know, just how, how do you come up with all this stuff? No, I never practice. Never practice. Yeah, yeah. We don't, I mean, like imp for improvising, we don't practice, but I mean, we practice with the X. We work, we work yeah. with the stuff. But for this kind of thing, for me, I, I I heard a lot of new things, like from 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 Terry, and um, I also discovered some new stuff that that happens often when when I play like improvising that's I think that's part of the reason I do it it's really like for me it seems limitless and endless what you can uh, the sounds and, and the ideas that you can pull out of one instrument with six strings you don't you don't need also tons of pedals or stuff you can get so much different stuff out of it but do you accumulate vocabulary? I mean, I've heard playing yeah. with you guys. There's things that become part of your language or part of your the sounds that you have. Of course, yeah, 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 sure. So you, you, yeah, but it's you do interesting learn when you discover though. something to try it again, and then maybe in a different situation mm -hmm. or yeah. see if it works also. And mm -hmm. It's a bit yeah. like painting a weird abstract painting and then try again or not. Mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. or it depends. It depends on the yeah. It depends. On, it depends on the room also. Do it like that. Yeah. Because the room, the room resonates in a certain way, and you you play something one night, and you you try the same thing another night in another room, and it just sounds crap. So then, you do, in a way, you don't carry. You could carry on if if you if if it's working somehow musically if you're playing with someone else, but sometimes you just stop because it doesn't work. Then then. For me, that's also important that you sense the the sound. I think John Butcher is a really good uh, musician for that, for for sort of picking up on on the reflections in the room and working with that. Like, and you can you can you can see and hear him working at it, and he discovers stuff and he starts <coughs> uh, sort of. It's it's amazing. It's 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 really. I, I, the first couple of times I heard him do that, I thought, wow, that's really improvising. He's improvising with something. If he's playing solo, like he's really improvising with something, not with another musician, but with the with space. The acoustics, and yeah. Yeah. It's really a great fun. example. Was also this when we did a project in Ethiopia. Paul Nielsen loved a great uh, drummer on a uh, music school for blind people. Oh yeah. And then he had a duo with a, a, a girl who she just started, I think, but she didn't really know really. She was really not a good drummer, also, and but she had this kind of nice drum, and then. Paul played duo with her, and she, you could hit, she never heard anything like it, of course. And, but then she started hitting this thing and going with him, and yeah. to, it was so unbelievable musical moment for me that someone from not any background, not any, not even knowing who he is or mm -hmm. who he looks like, even yeah. not heard anything like. It. And then they played together for like ten minutes, and then wow, it was a kind of fantastic. Mm -hmm. but Paul was also wow, yeah. <laughs> amazing. Thank you.